I am very happy to see that there are some India Iree fans in here with me. Amen, amen. <laughs> the song that you just heard today was from by far my favorite artist, um, India Iree, and her mission is to spread love, healing, peace through the power of words and music. Now this past Friday, the job numbers came out, right? And we are still stuck at a 9.1 unemployment rate. And for minority communities, that number is significantly higher. We are at a point in our nation where our American dream, as we once knew it, it's over. And now is the time to redefine who we are and where we're going as a nation. And with that in mind, I would like you to just look at the person next to you. Just find, look at the person next to you and repeat after me. There's hope. It doesn't cost a thing to smile. You don't have to pay to laugh. You better thank God for that. Amen, amen. There is hope. It is a privilege and an honor for me to be here today. I must confess, I always enjoy speaking at UU congregations because it allows me to draw outside the lines, per se, or color outside the lines as it relates to my faith, and so that's always a privilege. Um, I consider myself to be a womanist theologian, and sometimes in my traditional um, congregation that I come from, that's not always received, but I feel like I can take a risk here with you today. <laughs> Before I go into my sermon, I just want to take out time to acknowledge my friends and colleagues that took out time to come and be with me today. Your presence truly means the world to me. Thank you for sharing yourself with me today. Let us pray. We are one. We are one. We are one in spirit. We Hallelujah, hallelujah, we are one in spirit, we are one. Hear now the words of Nikki Giovanni, the poem, Nikki Rosa. Childhood remembrances are always a drag if you're black. You always remember things like living in Woodlawn with no inside toilet. And if you become famous or something, they never talk about how happy you were to have your mother all to yourself and how good the water felt when you got your bath, your t your bath from one of those big tubs um, like the folks in Chicago use for barbecues. And somehow when you talk about home, it never comes across how much you understood their feelings as the whole family attended meetings about Hollandale. And even though you remember, your biographers never remember your father's pain as he sold his stock and another dream goes. And though you're poor, 
It isn't poverty that concerns you. And though they fought a lot, it isn't your father's drinking that makes any difference, but only that everyone is together and you and your sisters have happy birthdays and very good Christmases. And I really hope no white person ever have cause to write about me because they'll never understand that black love is black wealth and they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was quite happy. I think we can learn a lot from the words of Nikki Giovanni today. In a very clever way, she tells the story of what it is to be black and struggling with issues of poverty from the perspective of someone who has accomplished success. It is clear that she is looking back into her childhood from a place of privilege, and one can even say comfort. As she tells the story through the avenue of poetry, she can, you can feel the tension of how the world views her as a woman of color and little means. In this piece, she remembers the moments of joy and happiness and childhood nostalgia that most of us can relate to. There's someone, some of us have these very complicated backgrounds, but I'm sure that most of us can remember those moments within our childhood where a parent or a caring adult made us feel like we were the center of the universe. Yes, those moments when it just brings a smile to your face and joy to your heart just to think about it. Those were the moments that Ms. Giovanni valued from her upbringing. Yet, at the same time, she forces us to recognize how society takes away the rights of the poor to have such wonderful childhood memories. Clearly, if you are poor or grew up with a single parent, maybe you're an immigrant or a minority, and now lives a life of privilege, your childhood must be filled with stories of overcoming adversities, right? And because you have overcome the odds, you must take pride in being a part of an upwardly mobile class, social class now, right? I just love this poem <laughs> because it truly does challenge us. And yes, Nikki is writing from a place of an African-American woman in a U.S. context. However, her message can be understood from a socioeconomic perspective as well as a multicultural perspective as well. Believe it or not, I have been in ministry and doing social justice work for 12 years now. I know what you're thinking, I look really young. <laughs> but I have been doing this work for a while. And as I have served in faith communities as well as in nonprofits, I have come across some interesting observations on how we understand and relate to individuals who come from financially challenging backgrounds. Let me be the first to say that the dynamics of one's economic well-being is complicated. 
But for the most part, we live in a society that truly classifies and understands the human experience through capitalism. This is no secret. Currently, our national dialogue is centered on this. And of course, I'm clear that money is a huge aspect of our lives. And in order to ensure a stable country and a strong economy, we must have it. However, the way in which we view ourselves and others in relation to money has the harm of oppressing and demoralizing massive groups of people. Have you ever thought about the way we assess and assist individuals of little means? The language that we use and the behavior we embody really undermines the humanity of working families and the poor. Think about it. We give charity to the less fortunate. We often call them the have-nots. They are underemployed. They are undereducated. We subsidize low-income families with public assistance, and the list of words and metaphors can go on and on and on. It just has a negative feel underneath it, underneath these words. When dealing with the poor and working families, we tend to see, hear, and experience these communities through their challenges rather than their humanity. In essence, we have created a language and a culture around struggling families and the poor that undermines them constantly. And I wonder why it is, and we wonder why it is so challenging for people to move up the socioeconomic ladder and pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Even in our most helpful moments, we attack, we blame poor people for who and what they are. We behave this way because it becomes a social, a social avenue by which we exclude people. Social exclusion in many parts of the wor world is used as a sociological term that describes social disadvantage. It refers to the process in which individuals and entire communities of people are systematically blocked from rights, opportunities, and resources. I believe Nikki Giovanni had a good understanding of the implication of social exclusion as she wrote this poem. As a person from a humble background, she knew how the world would tell her story on her behalf, even with her success. She knew the focus would not be on what she had, rather than what she did not have. The story, this is the story that so many of us can really relate to. And I must say to you that even the most progressive of people have a tendency to fall within this trap. I found this to be true about a week ago as I was reading the Boston Globe. The capture of this, or, this article was, between haves and have-nots, an even greater gulf. The article highlighted the enormous income disparity between the greater Boston area and the western part of the states. 
While family incomes across Massachusetts have generally risen over the past decade, the poorest residents have fallen significantly behind. The journalists describe Massachusetts as two commonwealths. In Berkshire County and the Pioneer Valley, where for decades the closing of plants have created this hollow economic hole, the middle, the middle income and the poor, their income levels have fallen significantly by 24%. Now that has not been the case for the hub. The greater Boston median income among affluent families have grown 54%. At the center of this article was a woman with two children who was struggling to make the ends meet. She was the working poor and finding a job opportunity in her community proved to be very challenging. She had a stable job once as a housekeeper, as a supervisor even, at a ski lodge. But then she was laid off as a result. Now she works at McDonald's, making $3 less an hour than she did before. In the article, you can just tell this woman was really struggling. But she made it very clear that her children were one of her few joys. And at that moment, as a reader, I had so much compassion for her. However, my compassion moved to concern after reading the last paragraph of the article. The journalist ended the piece by stating this woman struggled in her career because she was disadvantaged. She was pregnant at age 16, and on top of that, she was pregnant with her third child that was on the way. As a reader, you went from being so concerned about this woman and her family to questioning what was really going on. And I have to be honest and have a confessional moment with you. I fell right into social exclusion mode. I was concerned about the well-being of her and her family under such circumstances. And as my mind began to race with questions regarding the complexities of this story, I realized I needed to take a step back. Who was I to question whether or not this woman had the right to move forward with her pregnancy? The article, the article wasn't even about her pregnancy. It was about the disparity of job opportunities in the western part of the state versus the greater Boston area. And I'm clear right now that this is the part of this sermon that will start to feel a little uncomfortable. I'm pretty sure that everyone here probably will have a different interpretation of this Globe article and what this woman should or should not have done with her life. And that's okay. But I'm not here to talk about or debate the politics of this woman's situation. I'm here to have us see her humanity. I'm here to challenge all of us to see and to feel and to acknowledge the human experience of the poor. That is what this poem is all about. And I believe that that is what the creator is calling us to do.
Does our wealth and social status give us the right to regulate and define the narrative of others? Do we have the right to dictate life choices or prescribe solutions without fully acknowledging and seeing our shared human experience? Can people with little means have the right to build family structures and even find happiness without judgment? Better yet, can privileged individuals respect and see the shared desires of love, fidelity, family, community that all people desire regardless of your ethnic background or your socioeconomic status? Isn't that what we are called to do? To see the shared human experience and to see that money does not constitute happiness? Now I have to be honest with you, money does definitely relieve stress, but it is not the center of joy. Why is this so important? A wise preacher by the name of June Cooper, um, who's the executive director, executive director of City Mission Society of Boston, once stated that we have to break down the dividing walls. The poem, Nikki Rosa, is challenging us to do just that. Reverend June believes that breaking down walls that divide us is required because we have to challenge our assumptions. Those who have enough are called to draw near to the most vulnerable, not because they are less sinful, but because they are sinned against the most. When we draw near to those who are most sinned against, our call is not first to make a difference, but to allow the pain of the encounter to disturb us. Once we feel that pain and encounter that discomfort, maybe then we will be able to see our shared humanity we will truly be able to see that, yes, there is hope. It really doesn't cost a thing to smile, and you don't have to pay to laugh. Maybe then we will see our shared hopes and dreams and desires for the future and the very people we do not understand. Maybe then we will see that in the very people that we labeled that all the while there was happiness. Childhood remembrances are always a drag if you're black. You always remember things like living in woodland with no inside toilet. And if you become famous or something, they never talk about how happy you were to have your mother all to yourself and how good the water felt when you got your bath from one of those big tubs that folks in Chicago barbecued in. And somehow, when you talk about home, it never gets across how much you understood their feelings as the whole family attended meetings about Hollandale. And even though you remember, your biographers never understood your father's pain as he sold his stock. And another dream goes. And though you're poor, it is in poverty that concerns you. And though they fought a lot, 
It isn't your father's drinking that makes any difference, but only that everyone is together and you and your sisters have happy birthdays and very good Christmases. And I hope no white person ever have cause to write about me because they'll never understand black love is black wealth. And they'll probably talk about my hard childhood and never understand that all the while I was quite happy.